Welcome to the Elevation Podcast. This podcast seeks to explore everything from mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. We aim to help you increase your performance, recovery, and optimization with your mind and body. Get ready to get elevated. second episode of the Elevation Podcast. My name is Tanner Bishop and I am your host of the podcast. With me today is my brother Alex Bishop. Alex is an entrepreneur, a registered counselor, once a financial advisor. He left it all behind to start a path of personal growth and helping other people overcome their mental struggles. He moved across the country to Vancouver, British Columbia, Knowing no one there and having no connections, despite his fears and struggles, he persevered, finishing his counseling program, which he'll talk about more in the podcast, and start now he's in the early stages of running his own business. He works in community mental health. Just as a disclaimer before we start today's podcast, I would like to say that you should not take any of this as medical advice, and you should always consult a healthcare practitioner before you try implementing any of the strategies we're going to talk here about here today because everyone is very individualized and we don't want you trying anything before speaking with your doctor or psychiatrist. But without any further ado, Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tanner. No problem. So just to start things off, tell us, you know, where you're at and what sort of led you to where you, where you are now. Sure. So, um, maybe I'll just start with where I was and kind of where I am now, just as like a progression and a journey. So, I started out, um, I guess a, a, a bit of a backstory, I started out kind of conditioned to, to take over the family business and finance. So my dad's a financial advisor and, um, you know, bless his heart, he's a great guy, he thought it was a good idea for me to, you know, take over the family business and work as, a, uh, you know, take over his financial advisory practice. And I knew from pretty much the start that that's not what I wanted to do. But I felt the obligation to do that because he was my dad. And, you know, I also looked at the, I guess, f- financial side of it. It was pretty rewarding to, to have that kind of safety net. And the opportunity too. The opportunity, yeah. yeah. There was everything there. You know, it checked all the boxes, but the only box it didn't check was my, you know, what my heart was calling for. So um, I started a path, like along my journey, I really started to get into spirituality and kind of looking inside myself and wanting to figure out myself more. And um, 
that journey led me to really making a strong decision against continuing with that way of life. Um, yeah, so like really looking inside myself, I, I found out that that's not what I wanted to do, and which led me to having a you know a tough conversation with my dad and saying this this isn't actually where I want to be in life, and I want to be doing something different. And obviously he you know he he understood. He was like, "What? Well, what do you want to do then?" I was like, "Well, I think I'm going to be a counselor." <laughs> so. And I knew, you know, I, I knew where I wanted to go. I had it all planned out at that point. And I said, I'm, I'm from Nova Scotia, for any of you that don't know. And uh, I, I said, I'm going to move to Vancouver and take a counseling program in Vancouver across the whole country to the other end on this Pacific Ocean. Um, so anyway, I got my affairs in order and I sold all my stuff and, and I... Long story short, went out there. And the reason I did that, like, I mean, I could have taken a counseling program more locally. And there was some stuff online, but I wanted to get, I wanted to have the experiential side of it. So Rhodes was, Rhodes Wellness College is where I studied. And it was a 82-week program where we basically did our own work and our own healing. Um, instead of sitting in a classroom every day and just going through you know, material in a book. So we were able to, pra every single day we were practicing with one another, we were working through stuff, we were looking inside ourselves, we were doing breath work and uh, we were doing CBT on, e CBT on, each on each other and we were, you know, we were doing psychodramas, reenacting situations from the past and like doing trauma reprocessing. And so I had all of this experience and all of those things you'll get into a bit more yeah. later. So yeah. if anyone's listening, don't worry. We'll cover CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, and all those other things. Yeah, we'll cover that a bit later. So instead of just learning it all in a book and not having any practice, I had like the firsthand experience of actually doing it, and a lot of programs don't offer that. So that's what I really wanted. Um, so anyway, that's what, that's what led me out there. I did the program. It was amazing. I learned a lot about myself. I worked through some, some of my stuff. And, um, and what else? And then, and then that led me into community mental health. So not only do I run a private practice in counseling, I also work in community mental health, working with people with more severe mental health issues like schizophrenia and, and, you know, borderline, some other issues that are more difficult. Um, so I have like the two ends of it. I have my private practice and I also work with individuals in that area. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's good. kind of where I'm at now. It's a good uh, segue. So I think we'll, for this, you know, for this episode, we'll focus more on your private practice and, you know, something maybe more people can relate with because your community mental health is more so extreme circumstances that maybe, I don't even know if any of those people would be listening to this. So um, for more of the general person, we'll get into your the stuff you do and the people you work with, not obviously not specific sure. people, but, um, so yeah, what is like your main sort of niche with your private practice and where are you like kind of taking that and then explain some of the strategies you use and maybe how they integrate with other strategies. Um, and before that, just kind of on the topic, just sort of the three main components of, your mental health 
if you're kind of a you're experiencing whatever's going on with your body your you know your past experiences what you've learned as a child all of these things are coming to play a role in your mental health so you have your genetics and your physiology so like your hormones and your sort of what you were born with that can affect your mental health but you also have learned behaviors and sort of thought patterns and neural pathways that your brain makes these associations and these connections. And then you also have sort of your emotional part of your mental health. And all three of these are going to play a role in your overall mental health. So from what I understand, Alex, you mainly focus in thoughts and emotional is sort of your your main focus is the mind is more of subconscious and learned yeah. learned responses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's there's it's a little bit more detailed than that. I mean, we're getting into we're getting we're going into like the mind body connection and things like that too. Um, maybe I'll just do an overview of what I. Yeah. What so I, go into your uh, your practice. Yeah. The therapies you use, and then maybe connect it through those three main components of things that sure. can influence your mind. Sure, I'll do my best to. So the niche that I'm working in right now or that I'm that I've chosen is um, it's relationship anxiety or it's also called r- relationship OCD and it's characterized by individuals who have obsessive thinking regarding one's relationship or partner so there's two there's two there's you, there's two types and usually they're um, they're either combined or one has one or the other. So there's relationship focused OCD and then there's partner focused. So it's, it's all, it's all around the idea of, um, having doubts or insecurities or obsessive thoughts regarding one's relationship or one's partner, such as, do I love this person? Am I attracted? Is this person enough for me? Is there someone better out there? Like that grass is always greener syndrome. Um, and it's really about, there is constant pervasive obsessions over the rightness of one's partner, which then that's the obsessions that creates anxiety because then it's like, okay, well, if this person isn't right for me, then that must mean that I, that I need to leave, which activates that anxious, the anxious attachment. So the first side of it's like the avoidant, like do like, Oh, I don't love this person. I got to get out of this relationship and find someone else which activates the anxiety related to the anxious attachment, such as like, oh, what am I going to do? I I need this person and I'm afraid of loss, which then leads into the compulsive component of, I need to get reassurance. I need to ask someone, I need to Google. I need to make sure that this person is in fact right for me. So there's a cycle that happens, obsessions, anxiety, and compulsions that go around a cycle. And basically that's where I work. Um, okay, so you, just to slow it down so we can break a few of these things open here. Sure. Um, so just to differentiate for anyone thinking, you know, well, some of these things could be rational concerns. It's more so for the people that have anxiety yeah. and they have anxiety anyways. So the fuel of these thoughts isn't rational thinking. The fuel of these thoughts is more so the anxious part of this person's brain feeding them these like intrusive thoughts. And so what you were saying right there was like the three components of like sort of relationship OCD would be, you know, you get the anxious thought first coming in. What if the person doesn't love me? Yeah. And that's the C that's like the CBT more 
pro- or like model of it's like thought influences feeling and then behavior. Okay. So yeah, continue. So just to keep it as so we can kind of outline it a little bit. Um, so what if uh, my partner doesn't love me anymore? That could be the thought that you get. Yeah, that and that or like there's there's two parts right there. There's what if they don't love me or what if I don't love them? Okay, yeah. so we'll start we'll start with what if they don't love okay. me. Um, so you get that thought, it gets in your brain, and then when you're not even aware of it, which a lot of people aren't aware of this, then they'll seek sort of they'll may they'll ruminate or obsess over it for a bit to the point where it leads to a compulsion where then they do something to reassure themselves that that's not true mm-hmm. so one of them could be i guess like an example you can correct me if i'm wrong but it would be so they don't think their partner loves them so they become more clingy to the person and they're seeking reassurance from them that they do that in fact, that they do them. love them um but then the catch is that's it's not a good enough. behavior to it's never enough yeah for a lot of them but then also you're going to lead to these unhealthy behaviors for your relationship that might push your partner away because exactly, yeah. you're just pushing yourself on them so much yeah that maybe they start withdrawing because they're like i need a break yeah but then that's a negative feedback to the person because they're like oh another withdrawing from me so i need to do it more so that's one aspect and then what was the other one you said like internal sort of like what if i don't love them or yeah. what if i'm yeah. doing something wrong type of thing you can yeah there's like it. there's what if what if i don't love this person what if i'm not attracted what if i prefer to be with somebody else that's like more of the um that's more of like the avoidance side of the individual so you have these two components and like i'll just speak to a little bit of underlying stuff so that's more understandable like the average person like you're gonna get an average person. Everyone has these thoughts. Everyone has the thought of like, oh, you know, maybe I don't like I'm not in in love with this person or whatever. But with ROCD, it's to the extreme. It's very obsessive and very intrusive, and um, like a lot of it, there's many different components and root causes of it. There's our culture is feeds this romantic ideal of the, this person that you need to be with in order to be happy uh this this you know hollywood i'm not gonna uh oh, can you swear on this podcast yeah <laughs> it's just a fucking bunch of malarkey <laughs> and it's feeding it's feeding people this unrealistic expectation of what you need to what a relationship needs to be like so there's a belief component to it that like we've been growing up around hollywood and seeing these cartoons and movies of like this is what this you need to be with in order to be happy and so people are externalizing their happiness their their other reference they're looking outside themselves in order for somebody else to fill them up and make them feel good about themselves so when they have this thought what if i'm not attracted or what if i don't love this person they have this idea of love that isn't actually love. It's more of a, it's more of like romance and superficial. Um, it's like, it's an, it's infatuation that people are addicted to and they're not really seeing as love as an emotion or a being state that's in each of us that we can access, which, and then we're getting into when people close themselves off, when they're hurt, they're hurt in the past, they close themselves off to love. And then they can't access their own love, so they don't know what it feels like. So they're trying to find it outside themselves. And then, so that's kind of, yeah. So I'm on a rant there. So Tanner, you want to reel it in? And so yeah, we'll just redirect it back here a little bit just to uh, 
you know, stay, try to stay focused. So culture plays a role in sort of our ideas about love. And one thing you mentioned that I think just to highlight a main point from that is when people are looking for this thing from outside of them instead of from inside of them. So instead of working on the stuff that they need to work on to make themselves better, they're looking for someone to fill that hole and make them feel better. They're looking for happiness outwardly yeah. instead of looking inwardly to fix what they need to fix or just to elevate what they should sure. be elevating. Sure. So they're finding the person to try to fix that. Yeah. But that's not going to work because then there's always a new thing. Yeah, and if you don't fix it else. inside, yeah. you can't get outside. Another uh, aspect of that that I, I heard forget what the exact quote was, but I think it was baggers can't be choosers. Um, and it was more so outlining the fact that if you're in a state of, you know, looking for someone to solve all your problems and yeah. you're, you know, maybe a bit of an emotional wreck and you're, you need someone or you think you need someone, mm -hmm. then you're only going to attract what a bagger can attract. But when you sort of work on yourself and, fix yourself up a bit or are more self-focused on in a good way, not in a narcissistic yeah. way, but you're self-focused, then you're not a bagger anymore. And people are attracted to that quality of sure. reassurance. So sure. I think bottom line, before we move on a good takeaway from those, you know, both of what we just said would be work on yourself yeah. before you try to find someone to fill that because if you work on yourself and then you find someone that person can help you elevate yourself instead of you relying on them well to make you feel good I, I agree with you but I'd also like to add to that is we grow most in relationship so instead of like you you get in relationship and you're working and growing together. You're learn you learn most about yourself in relation to someone else because they're mirroring and they're and they're they're mirroring all of your shit. So I would say that and especially if any of my followers are listening to that comment, it's gonna spike their obsessions because they're gonna say, oh shit. Well, I I should I should be figuring out my own shit before I get into a relationship with someone else. So just so you know, if any of you are listening to this. That absolutely doesn't need to be the case. If you want to do that, that's yeah. fine. But I think that you can absolutely be with someone. You can you can be with someone and be looking them to, at them to fill you up. And you can also realize that and use that as a way to grow. Because then you're taking self-responsibility for the fact that you're trying to get someone else to fill you up. Yeah. And that, that can be... And to add on to that... If you're going I back, rant. I, you know I yeah. rant, so, I'm, so gonna, I'm just I I re I'll reel it in when I when we need. <laughs> I got. I'm gonna keep ranting. So. Yeah, um, I'll keep it. I'll keep it on track. Um, so yeah, that comment wasn't for people with uh, re relationship anxiety, because that's a specific problem. Their anxieties come out when there's a relationship, so you can't even possibly work on it really. If you maybe you can a little bit, but maybe in that state it's more you got to work on it while you're in a relationship. It's best that way. Yeah, cause, yeah. or else what you're working in theory, you're not working. When we get into life. IFS, we can talk about how you do it outside. But okay. but to, it's best to be triggered because then you're seeing all your shit come up and you're yeah. able to work on it, right? All right, cool. So I hope that was 
<laughs> somewhat. Corona? I, I hope that was somewhat informative, or you followed what we were trying to say there with the relationship anxiety component. Um, and I think all of that can apply even if you don't necessarily have relationship anxiety. Oh, what I want to go over just as a part of that, that everyone has, but it might not manifest to a point where it's an issue is the attachment styles yeah, that you started to touch on. hundred percent attachment but related for sure. For just a clear type of attachment style, it's basically the type of relationship that you got with your parents growing up emotional security and I think is the biggest component is the type you bring into romantic relationships in the future so you have a secure attachment style which means for the most part you don't have tendencies of behavior related to your partner and insecure attachment which you can have specific tendencies of emotion and with your partner so there's three I don't know the specific names maybe you do but it's um, insecure, avoidant, insecure, ambivalent, and mixed. I don't know what the term yeah, is. Yeah, well, so it, it depends on it. There's different research out there. People have named it different things. I like to just say, which makes most sense to me, there's secure, there's anxious, yeah. there's avoidant. Okay. And then there's, you could, fearful, Mi- avoidant, anxious, avoidant, or disorganized. Okay. So avoidant is people who remain distant to their partner to avoid Being getting seen. hurt yeah, or getting, hurt. getting vulnerable. Yeah. Anxious is the type that's clingy with their partner because they want the reassurance of knowing they're loved. Yeah. And then the anxious avoidant can be a mix of those two things. So It's one of the more difficult ones. It's, yeah, to work through. Um, so that one would be more so inconsistent signals. Yeah. Sometimes they come on strong. Maybe the partner is like, oh, like they finally open up to me and then boom, they switch and become avoidant. Yeah. So that's an outline of sort of the relationship anxiety part that we, Alex was sort of touching on there just in terms of the like relationship OCD, uh, which is obsessive compulsive disorder. But yeah, that's kind of an outline of maybe the types of people that could have well, OCD. The, the- what I is found, ROCD is separate. ROCD is separate. What here? This is what. Let's just go over this because it's important for people to know. If for the most part, the individuals that I have seen with and worked with with ROCD, and I know for myself, I have the I have both. I have I'm sometimes I'm avoidant and sometimes I'm anxious, and that's when we see this push pull. It's like this polarization that happens in the mind. It's like come here, come here, come closer, and then. Once they come close, it's like, but don't come too close because I don't want to be seen. So it's kind of, if you could... I mean, and no by be see seen, do what do you mean? So what... Vulnerable? What, being vulnerable, opening up, opening your heart to someone else because it's the risk of loss. It's the risk of being seen and seen as worthless. And I'm going to go on another rant here. How much time do we, do we have? We got until, you know, we got a while. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, long ago... Those that, that develop insecure attachments, anxious, avoidant, disorganized, whatever, they've sacrificed authenticity for attachment. So when we're growing up and someone else wants us to be different than we are, or we're getting messages from our family saying that, you know, I, I don't think it's a good idea that you're an artist or a, a musician 
you should be doing this because so and when you're young you need to be in connection with others in order to survive so what what kids do is they mold themselves they sacrifice their authenticity who they really are and what their interests are to be in connection with others attachment and then and then this part of them this these this creative creativity and other really beautiful aspects of them are buried away and locked away which creates hurt and difficulties and so here's this aspect of ourselves that we've sequestered away into inner dungeons and caves and things that we don't show anybody because we're scared of, and here's the scene part, we're scared if they see the stuff that has been buried away, they're going to leave us. Just, and there's shame there, there's all kinds of, there's stuff there that, so we show up in a, in a way, we put a mask on, we pretend to be somebody that, you know, maybe partially we are, but we're really not. We're, and then we're scared that if our, if our partner sees us, they're gonna hate what they see, and then they're gonna leave us. And it's better for for those of us with ROC. It's better to remain in control and leave them first than than to risk the pain that comes up from them seeing the stuff that we buried away long ago. It's so perceived as better. It's perceived as better. Yeah. So it's not actually better not to better. do that. Yeah. But as a mechanism of their defense, yep. they feel that if they leave them first, they were in control and yep. they're not. In a yet again a situation of being out of control, yeah, like and in rejected. through childhood, yeah, and all of these things apply to more than just childhood or to relationship anxiety. Oh, like just as a quick, yeah, sort of brief summary of all that. Um, this applies to any of the things you struggle with as an adult. Yeah, probably something happened, if not. A hundred percent, something happened. Hundred percent, I'd say. Um, unless it's some sort of other tendency, but most likely it happened through childhood, and something happened that created a defense mechanism, which you can get into more once you do. I yeah. kind of go into IFS and that theory slash technique. Um, but yeah, basically any sort of tendency that might be seen as destructive or uh, as an issue. For most people and even some things that kind of might fly under the radar have probably been conditioned through childhood yeah. through your learning things oh i did this and i got shamed for it so now you have shame with the thing you did exactly and that can happen you know ver even a verbally if not more so verbally ver verbally abusive parents might have more damaging effect i don't know if this is accurate but on the kid for when they grow up because they were getting actual verbal input on this is why you suck or mm. why the parent might think that or you did this wrong because of this and then they have more direct reasons to associate issues yeah. with certain parts of their behavior or sure. being but that's a that's a big thing we could go into well uh, I, like just to touch on that it doesn't I mean, I don't know. Like, I can't say for sure because I'm not... I mean, I'm sure I read it somewhere. But whether it's verbal, whether it's nonverbal, even... Here's the thing, and I'd, I'd like for people to know this because a lot of people say, like, well, my childhood was fine. Like, I, I don't have any trauma. Trauma doesn't necessarily have to be some event that happened that was significant. Uh, Gabor Mate says trauma happens in two ways. 
a bad thing happened that shouldn't have happened and a good things didn't happen that should have happened. Attunement being, so let's just say your dad's sitting on the bed next to you and reading your story. Kids are highly, highly attuned to their environment. They're very, very emotionally attuned. They're very good at picking up things. Um, and if, if our dad's sitting on the bed reading us a story, but we pick up subconsciously body language. body language that they're not actually caring or not actually there with us while they're reading the story, they're just reading the words, a kid will take that to mean that they're not good enough for dad to read me a story and then there will be shame linked to that. So it doesn't even necessarily mean you have to have this big event that happened. It can be a stressed or depressed mother that wasn't fully there for you, for your needs. It can be... Alcohol. Yeah, even if they don't necessarily even do something damage. Yeah, quote I'm air quoting damaging to you to, still to the damaging. average person, right? Yeah. But through absence, that can cause yeah self identity of you know I'm not good enough yeah. or whatnot. When in reality, when we grow up, we realize everyone's got their shit going on. Yeah. But as a as a kid, um, you're atta- you're picking up on everything. So yeah. I think a basic rule of thumb that. I've kind of realized for most people, once you get talking to them is there's, it's impossible to go through life without picking up some shit. Oh, yeah. So even if you think, you know, your childhood was fine and whatnot, you got some damage. You got some, you pick something up. <laughs> yeah. You stored something a certain way, even if it wasn't perceived as horrible, like it still affected you. So I think not everyone needs therapy, but everyone could benefit from working through some of their stuff that they should that sure. they could work through so i think that's a good place to leave that like right. even if it's not an extreme situation you picked up on something and Absolutely. you learned something for most people um so it's just disorder is when it becomes to a point that it affects your life negatively and it causes distress to you but you can still have certain things that might affect your life, just not to the extreme of causing constant distress that you could work on to make your life even better. So you don't have to think about going to a counselor or a therapist as like you're weak. No, View it no, no. as you're strong enough to recognize yeah. that you should work on yourself. Because in my opinion, it's the people that neglect it and put it down that are the weak ones, not the people that recognize that they should benefit themselves by going to talk to someone. Yeah. I mean, if, if we were to, it, like, I wouldn't say that they're weak. I would, just, but I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. They're causing more weakness than they're creating yeah. Yeah. in themselves because by not taking the steps to make their life better or avoiding it, avoiding or, it or yeah. putting it away, that only creates more issue. Creates more issues. So like they might think they're making themselves stronger by just basically neglecting it, but yeah. really they're just causing more problems for themselves. Yeah. So I think you're always better. I mean, even just reading about it or yeah. meditating, like anything, anything that, that allows you to connect with yourself in some way inward, just to discover more about yourself is going to benefit you. Like, I mean, I mean, I always highly recommend going and seeing someone if you can afford it because it is expensive for, expensive for people. But even if, like Tanner's saying, even if you can't or you right not, not right now, you can afford it. There are me- so many things you can do to benefit yourself. Reading books on, on like meditating, certain types of meditations that are getting in your body, doing yoga, feeling, feeling yourself, getting... Because when we have trauma, we disconnect from our bodies and our emotions. 
And when we disconnect from our emotions, we don't have that like guiding compass to, to tell us, you know, they're, they're, our emotions are so valuable and we've disconnected from them because we don't, we don't believe they're safe because you can't, you can't, you can't disconnect. And then anyway, I'm, I'm going on a rant there again. So, <laughs> all right. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, just a key takeaway from that is I'm going to reference, um, something I made a post about. So anyone who follows me, which is probably the only people listening to this right now, um, but the elephant and the rider, so recognizing a lot of people just think they are their conscious mind and that's who they are and they're just kind of oblivious to all of the other things affecting their state of being, which is pretty mind-blowing and can cause anxiety if you go too deep into it, but you are a result of your body and your subconscious. So the analogy that I like to use for mainly behavior change, but it can apply to anything if you really think about it, is the rider and the elephant. So your conscious rational mind is the rider. So that's the decision-making part of you, the logical side of you, the side that can sort of guide where you want to go. And then there's the elephant, which is the emotional side of you, your subconscious. Um, and yeah, the proportions, I think it's the proportions that are important the elephant is way bigger than the rider. So our subconscious body, our subconscious mind, our subconscious mind and our body is so much more than our conscious mind. So you need to take the approach of recognizing that. And if you want to increase the quality of your life and your, your mental state, you need to work on all that emotional subconscious stuff because it's way more powerful than your conscious mind. You only have so much willpower and you only have so much that you can just, you know, grit through and push through and suffer through before yeah. you're just going to fail and collapse. Um, so recognizing that if you want to direct yourself in a certain way for the long term, you need to guide the elephant yeah. as well as the rider. So I just think it's a good analogy for people to yeah, kind of become aware of how much your emotions and your subconscious is actually affecting you. Because a lot of people don't even... No. think about it ever their no. whole life so well our, our subconscious mind represents not like out of everything it represents 95% of our experiences is unconscious yeah 5% is are, we're, we're conscious of at any given time and then we have like the building off your thing the elephant the, that 95% is the elephant and then we have this what we learned in what I learned in school was PIFA it's a what is it a whatever like anyway perception yeah. interpretation oh, an feeling an acronym action so what we're perceiving at any given time and we interpret it is based upon what's going on in that 95 percent yeah so when people say like oh i had this reaction but i have no idea why well it's because it's unconscious yeah and so something perceive- happened at some point exactly to cause you to interpret it that way yep yeah. Yeah. So then we have we're we're always perceiving. And then when we interpret something, which we have a feeling about, is related to that thing in the past, and then we take action based upon that feeling. So the more that you can bring the unconscious and make it conscious, like Tanner was saying, work on that stuff. You make the unconscious conscious, so that you can make a conscious choice about what's happened, so you can actually decide. Okay, maybe I don't want to go smash this guy in the in the face, <laughs> or or you know, or say this thing to that person 
maybe I want to actually realize what, what is the reaction I'm having to that and what is the choice I want to make based upon that. Yeah. So, or even in a relationship. In relationship too. There's also, um, just as a side note about that, like reactions and stuff, kind of transitioning back to relationships. Sure. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to even remember all of them, but it's like the four uh, four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse. Have you heard about no. that? Um, it's like the four main things that, I forget who did it, but he conducted a study. I can search it up quick. He did a study, and he basically was looking at the main determinants of whether people will get a divorce. And so he had them come into a like fake apartment. Mm. They knew they were part of the study and um, they just observed their behavior. So oh, how, yeah. when they would have fights, um, how they would resolve them, how each person's behavior would be in the fight. Um, and then they would look at these factors and they found four main things that influence whether the couple get a divorce. And I think they predicted it with like, it was over 90% accuracy. I think it was like 95% accuracy they could okay. determine based on these three things. So I'm just searching that right now. For all of you, if any of you are listening to this that have ROCD, I can hear your anxiety climbing up right now. So just take a second and pull back and just listen and just remember that's going to be all right. We'll, we'll discuss it. We'll, we'll talk about it after. Yeah. yeah. And this is not like... Yeah, I guess that would flare up some anxiety in them. So don't think of it as you're going to yeah. have these. These are just things that... It's not that, a destined... You're not destined. These are just things that most people can implement and be aware of in their relationship yeah. to make sure it's healthier. Yeah. So it's not yeah. like if it's there, you're doomed. Exactly. Because every relationship has a certain amount of this. Yeah. It's to the extent of like, you know... Nice. How much does it determine? Um, so yeah, it's criticism, defensiveness contempt and stonewalling so criticism is if you're constantly going at your partner like saying you do this wrong mm. you do this wrong what Shame do you do this yeah just like constantly or even you know whatever the dose is but like consistently criticizing what they're doing that's one of the horsemen that <laughs> the relationship apocalypse uh the other one's defensiveness <laughs> so anytime like your partner's trying to uh you know talk to you about something like you always forget to put the toilet seat down obviously that's a very simple example yeah, yeah. probably not gonna end your relationship for the toilet seat but instead of hearing them out when you get defensive mm -hmm. and anytime they try to bring something up with you you get defensive like i do with you sometimes yeah <laughs> <laughs> um you get defensive instead of actually like listening to what they have to say it's a reaction but it's also it's not a constructive reaction it's a destructive uh, type of behavior contempt I think that's just I forget what that one is but I think it's just when they don't really care anymore apathy it's like I don't it's like yeah whatever that's, that's just not showing that interest your relationship's right? done yeah cause yeah, the person yeah the person just like whatever yeah don't really care yeah and then stonewalling I think that was I forget this was a couple years ago I took this uh, course but stonewalling was a big one because stonewalling is when you're just like you shut down and you don't even allow the fight mm -hmm. to have you just completely withdraw mm -hmm. from them and you don't mm -hmm. give them anything and i think that that one causes more distress than any to the other person oh, because yeah. it's like 
they won't even talk to me. So they, you don't even get the the satisfaction of a fight. Yeah. It's just like, I'm gone. And that'll activate See the attachment system because then it's like, they don't care about me. Yeah. And yeah, that that's, it's not good. So yeah, those are the four horses. That just made me think about that because cool. of whatever. I forget now, but yeah, that's something to keep an eye on. So criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. If you notice that you know you do any of these things, go see a counselor. See <laughs> a counselor. Notice, if you guys are doing any of this stuff, you guys gotta go see someone. Or right? just you know, noting is a yeah. a good meditate or mindfulness strategy. When you notice that stuff's coming into your mind or that behavior's being displayed, note it, yeah. recognize it, and then try to reduce it. Yeah, noting's good. Um. So yeah. Now I guess just to move, you know, we can move it on here to the types of treatments you do. Okay. All right. So I I pretty much just use internal family systems for everything now. I'm pretty much like a hardcore. So I'll I'm just gonna go for a little rant here. First, explain internal family systems. Okay, I'll explain internal family. So inter the internal family systems model is a, it's a psychotherapy, but it's psych it's a psycho psycho spiritual, um, and it's based on the idea that in each of us we all have this innate inner wisdom. So if you're looking at like mindfulness or other practices, um, we all have this. We all have this energy this calm compassionate clear curious creative there's like this there's the eight c's of self energy that we have inside of us and that's the core of this model so let's let's get a quick list of those do you remember all of them uh there's calm compassionate clear curious courage how many is that calm compassionate clear curious courage creative connectedness and uh, uh there's there's eight anyway that's so there's these there's these eight C's that represent who we really are at our core, and th thousands of years the, the people have been talking about this and you know, um, and and other than that we have parts of us. So it's it's we have parts of us. We have protector parts and we have exile parts. So protector parts are Pro protector parts are parts of you that are either proactive or reactive in their attempts to prevent you from feeling pain. Um, pain equals hurt, shame, you know, grief. So like that. just for an example, um, you got your heart broken one time. Sure. So what are the protective parts gonna do? What are some examples of just things? let me let me do a rant here and give you the whole lowdown on this stuff. Okay. Just, I'm thinking more. I'm thinking earlier. I'm thinking like. Um, Let's, why don't we just do our ROCD example of how antenna and family systems and parts affect relationship anxiety. Okay. It's probably better. So, okay. So I'll finish just describing the model first. So we have these parts of us. It looks at the mind as being multi, it's multiplicity, psychic multiplicity. We're comprised of multiple different parts. Each part has its own beliefs, me memories, beliefs, sensations, and emotions, and ways of thinking and, and working in your inner system. So those are these are protective parts, 
and then we have exiled parts where like if you've ever heard of your inner child or anything like that these are the very vulnerable parts of you that hold on to pain and trauma and difficulties and stress from the past and the protectors make sure that this pain doesn't come up and overwhelm you so like defense mechanisms you hear you hear protective mechanisms and things like that those are protective parts that are like our well our inner critic is a protective part our inner critic will criticize you to try and prevent you from going out there and taking risks because it's afraid that if you fail this is a taskmaster inner critic what they're called they're afraid if you fail you're going to you're going to have shame activated from the past so it prevents you from taking risks we also or no that's the that's the one that puts you out there to take risks then we have ones that prevent you from taking risks. So like keep you small and secure and don't don't allow you to go out into the world because they're afraid if you do, you're going to experience that hurt from before, that shame that exists there. So what so, are the ones that prevent you from going out? Protectors. And so then, and there what are the ones that get you to go out? Uh so the protector, like there's th- these are inner critics. The taskmaster is the one that makes you go out and do things in the world and be great and, okay. and high high achievers or usually have like a taskmaster and a critic it's never enough I have to keep performing at a high level I have to keep doing these things because if I don't I'm gonna be seen as worthless basically okay and then there's there's the inner critics that that cr- criticize you to prevent you from going out in the world and doing things to prevent failure to prevent failure same thing they're protecting against the same thing right okay. um we have caretakers. We have caretaker parts that want and to take care of. What's that part of? Is that its own category? Yeah, they're all just protectors, right? And what are the exiles? The exiles are your your vulnerable parts that hold on to wounds and trauma. Okay. And what what's their role? Their role. They don't have a specific role that they do in your system. They're just holding on to the difficulties. They're in like inner caves and dungeons. Okay. They're they're away. They've been pushed away. So if you Think so back it. to the elephant. All of these things yeah. are happening subconscious. Yeah. So all exactly. that. So your all of these protective, and if you don't want to think about this, fra- like very being fragmented as part of yourself, protectors are protective mechanisms. Yes. Of your subconscious, and the ex exiles. Exiles. The exiles the are the traumas and the things you're holding on to. Yeah. Yeah. But we're describing IFS, so we're going to talk in parts. Okay. Um. So, the idea behind IFS is that everyone and every single part of you, whether it is destructive or not, there can be protective parts that are child molesting parts, there can be protective parts that are doing terrible things in the world. And the, the idea in IFS, which I've experienced firsthand, and a lot of literature says it, is that these protective parts are, aren't innately bad they're just carrying this protective mechanism that they believe they need to do in, in order to keep the system safe. So each of these di- terrible things... Just to just to clear some stuff up, in case anyone made yeah. some bad association, Alex wasn't saying child molesting part that he's got. No, He was saying yeah, 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 some exactly. examples of extreme protective mechanisms. Let's clear that off. Extreme protective me- mechanisms can be something to make you feel in control of maybe something that happened to you. Yeah. So I'm assuming with the child molesting part, they got molested. So a protective mechanism yep. that they develop deep in their psyche or yep. their subconscious 
is that same type of part, and exactly. then they go out and do it. Exactly. So Alex was just outlining some extreme examples of protective mechanisms. He wasn't. Yeah, I was saying, just. Yeah, yeah, I was saying the more of extreme side of things that people think are really terrible. There's no doubt that it's terrible. It's awful yeah. the things that happen. However, it IFS is a non-pathologizing approach and looks at people as very whole beings that have these mechanisms that develop to protect a system. So what we do in IFS is we help connect to these parts of you to understand them more, to get an idea of why they're doing what they're doing. And then once that happens is they, they usually give us access to the exiles that hold the wounds. When we help reprocess and re-metabolize those earlier experiences that created the pain or the trauma or whatever, and we release them, the protective parts no longer have to do their job of protecting the system anymore, and they're willing to let it go. So an analogy could be the protective parts are the soldiers or the security yeah. for the exile parts. Exactly. So anytime an experience or something's happening, that could be the attacker. Your, your protective parts think it's someone trying to attack your yep. exile parts, so they fight them off with the thing that the... the the weapons that they think they need to fight exactly, them off, exactly um, to protect like the the baby essentially, which is the exile parts, the vulnerable. Exactly. So when you go down deep, you can recognize the mechanism which can allow you to get to the exile, which is like the vulnerable person that the the security guard is trying to protect yeah. or the soldier is trying to protect. And then once you can release that person from the cave, There's if no you want to call it that, so anymore. then that security yeah. guard can kind of just peace out. Yeah. <laughs> And you'll be good. Exactly. In theory. In theory. And, you know, it's it's a, it's a developing model and it's very popular and it's becoming more and more popular. It's, it's evidence-based. And um, another thing, another cool thing is too that, like it's called in family systems, internal family systems is because we have these systems in our head that operate like family units, like normal family units. We have, because in, in our system, like if you look at armies, you can look at, like, um, and I'm going to do my best to describe this, but there's the vulnerability of a country is protected by the soldiers. So literally like that, we have these systems that develop externally just as we do internally. And there's vulnerable parts of a system that are protected by our armies. And there's people in our armies that are exiled. So we have these systems outside just like we do internally. Anyway, I think that pretty much does it. It outlines it. It outlines it, yeah. Last analogy and is good. So, and then you were saying, we were talking about this the other day a little bit, but you were saying, so this is its own sort of up and coming theory and approach to treating any mental yeah. illness, right? So the extreme ends would be, you said the thing about like multi, uh, multiple oh, personalities. Well, it's called dissociative identity disorder now. Yeah. yeah. So explain how it can, like, in theory, maybe. Yeah, so what it what Dick Schwartz has found, Dick Schwartz is the creator of IFS. He's worked with schizophren people with schizophrenia and dissociative identity disorder. And not they're in dissociative identity disorder, they're not called parts, they're called alters. So you have these like extreme fragmented uh, inner system of parts that show up, but they're not they're they've they've created their own identity. Yeah, and, and parts have their own identities internally, but these have actually, they're more showing up externally. So in IFS, is called, we call it blended, when a part takes you over and you're 
experiencing life through the part's eyes. When we did the PIFA, perception interpretation, yeah. we get triggered. When we get triggered, a part blends with us and we're experiencing life through that part's eyes. And then when we calm down and we realize like, whoa, I can't believe I reacted that way. The part unblends and we become more calm. So that's when a part takes us over and we're experiencing life through the part. If anyone's got anxieties around control <laughs> or, uh, you know, philosophy or anything, or just don't worry, these are extreme cases. Like, well, it the, won't randomly come up because no. you learned about it. No, definitely So you're not. good. Yeah. <laughs> but just as a disclaimer, like, this is... First off, a theory, so there's no, like, you can't, for any of, for a lot of stuff with the mind, you can't cut and dry say this is the way it is, but it's a good model to work with people, so yeah. don't just, don't take it too literally, but it's a good approach to help. And do your research. Yeah. Like, if you're interested in it, look it up. There's a lot of great material on it and stuff, but yeah. with dissociative identity disorder, like I said, I'm going to do my best to explain it, is... They're extremely fragmented, and that's happened because of such difficulty. Sexual abuse, physical abuse, whatever happened is so severe that your parents did this in a way to protect you so that Betty could be, could act in this way, like, and then, you know, Joe over here is at, like, is using a different strategy, right? And I'm not even going to go any further. It's just, they're seeing their parts in dissociative identity yeah. disorder they're called alters and it works in a similar way in the brain it's just it's more extreme yeah yeah and we don't oh and also too self which when when all these parts unblend and give you space is what we lead from so the idea behind IFS is that we're able to lead from it's called self leadership and we're able to lead from that calm compassionate clear place and that's the idea behind it so once all your parts know that it's safe to give you space and relax, okay. then you can lead from this calm place. And with with dissociative identity disorder, these parts have completely taken over. taken over and not allowed you to have access to that self because they don't believe it's safe to be in self. Okay. So you said there's the, the eight? Uh, eight? Eight season self. Okay, so those are like the eight true parts of you. No, the, they're qualities of this, of you at your core. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. So like, but you as you would think of you, not because when you think of these sort of fragmented parts, you wouldn't necessarily think it's you, even though it's yeah. part of your system. Yeah. So when you clear all those out, these true parts of you can come forward. So we talked about relationship anxiety and how, and even just any sort of mechanisms you might have developed along the way of your life is when you're a kid, you're super sensitive to all these things. So you're constantly trying to discover a way to grasp the world around you. And then as you grow up, you take all that stuff into your adulthood and you don't even notice it's there. Mm -hmm. So we kind of, and we, so we tied that into attachment styles and how those may affect your behavior in a relationship. Um, and we didn't really dive into much, in other social interactions, but sort of the same principles apply apply to that. So, like, if you have an insecurity about uh, your body or maybe performing in front of other people, that originated from somewhere. Yeah. And it could have been culture. It could have been parents. Yeah. It could have been friends or a past partner. Um, and then that will sort of manifest 
So everything is coming usually from somewhere. Um, So that can go into your relationships. Um, And then we looked at the approach Alex uses for the most part, which is IFS, so internal family systems, which doesn't actually mean your family. It means the internal parts of yourself, protectors and exiles, that take on roles to protect you. Yeah. Um, and that was the overview of all of that. We also touched on this is mostly a component of like psychoanalysis or psychotherapy, sort of getting into yourself or your subconscious to try to figure stuff out. Um, and there are other components, but we we're not we weren't going to get into that today. Uh, maybe when I have someone else on in the future, we'll talk more about the genetic and physiological sides of things. Um, Alex said he also uses, or he knows how to, he's been trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, but his main approach is IFS. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've done, we've done psychodrama, psychotherapy, and dialectical behavioral therapy, and narrative therapy, and breath works, and all yeah. of that other, and all of it's just informed, I, I still use bits and pieces of those things, but it's all I, internal family systems informed, so... Everything I do is kind of informed by IFS and the, th- the approach and the thinking that goes behind that. But yeah, I definitely use components so of it's each your, of these things. Yeah, so it's more so your template yeah. is IFS, but you can apply... I think of the mind as parts, and I work with it in that way. Okay. And I, if I want to use bits and pieces of an, a different approach... Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, there's definitely other approaches and other effective strategies to oh, use. So. Yeah. Yeah, but just as an overview for maybe to give you guys something to think about, um, what we talked about today might open your eyes up to. Yeah, and like we, this was just all just a freaking like a big overview of all this stuff. Yeah. Like, we didn't really even go into attachment. We just kind of grazed the surface, but but it was a good I gives think, you a gives you at least sparks your interest, yeah. allows you to maybe explore more into it because it's hard to get deep into like a an topic. Hour. In an hour, yeah. And like kind of freestyling it here today. Um, but yeah, I think that's a good overview of everything. So I'm going to ask you just some closing rapid fire questions. Sure. So to start, just so people can kind of get to know you, and I'll sure. link Alex's information in the description below so you can find him on Instagram. But what are what's your top favorite hobby you like to do in your spare time uh well i guess i consider this a hobby i love i i have an advanced ifs therapist group which i do every twice a month it's definitely my favorite thing to do i we go on there and we do live demonstrations and stuff and we have a there's an ifs uh supervisor and and stuff on there which has it's been great cool. i like doing that Next question. Let's keep these All right, rapid fire. Rapid fire. What uh what are maybe two things you do every day or at least a few times a week for self care and personal growth? Uh two things? Yeah. Two main things if you just Every day? Yeah. Okay. Uh exercise and um inner work. What, if you could give one, we'll say one to three 
simple things that don't require a huge explanation that anyone could apply to improve themselves, what would it be? Self-compassion. Learn to bring, see if you can learn how to bring more compassion to yourself. I'd say that's a good thing. It doesn't take a crazy amount of effort and you can just bring a gentle hand and put it on your heart. And if you're struggling, it might be hard, but over time you'll get, you can get better at it and just say, listen, like, we're going to be okay. And you can just bring a little bit of love and compassion to yourself. Some it might be more difficult, but I think that's a good. What is one book you think everyone should read? <laughs> and don't say languages of love. Cause, uh, Dr. Koch's already said that one. Um, I would say, well, this is fine. I would say we, we by Robert Johnson. And it's like, uh, I think it's the psychology of an understanding of romantic love. It's all about like love and based on love. So. so we by Robert. We by Robert Johnson. Yeah, I'll put that in the description as. One thing you would tell people for lasting happiness. Go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. Is that that's it? that's all the rapid fires I got for you. All right. Sweet. Thanks for being here. So thanks everyone for listening uh, to today's episode. Um, and I'll keep you informed for the next one. Yeah, and just lastly, are you, are you going to stop it? Do you uh, stop you can it? go. If you, anyone needs to reach me, you can find me on my Instagram channel at, I mean, Tanner will probably put it in the show notes, yeah. but at Alex Bishop Counseling. My website's alexbishopcounseling.com. And if you have any questions or anything or you want to touch base with me, you can send me an email at alex at alexbishop.ca. Yeah, and all of that stuff will be in the show notes below and on Instagram. So thanks for listening. Have a good day.